How are you? Good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yes. Praise God for uh, all the Thanksgiving food. And uh, we're all starting our diets this week, so it's, it's okay. Uh, leftovers are great and glorious, and I'm so, so excited for Christmas. Okay, Thanksgiving was cool. It's over. Now Christmas is here. The greatest season, the greatest, yes, thank you, the greatest holiday ever, and I'm so excited. And with that, we are kicking off a brand new sermon series, an Advent sermon series entitled All Things New. Now, Advent, if you're not familiar with this tradition, uh, is a word that simently means arrival. Uh, In the Christian tradition, it's the celebration specifically of Jesus' arrival uh, into our world as a a baby. Uh, We celebrate and remember his arrival into our humanity. Uh, What I love about this season is that it helps tune our hearts uh, for what this season is all about. Uh, you see, during Christmas, it seems like we're often anticipating the arrival of a number of other things. Uh, we anticipate the arrival of, of family. If, if you, know, you have family visiting, maybe you haven't seen them all year, and, and Christmas is the one time where you see specific family. Maybe you're anticipating the arrival of certain gifts. Uh, maybe Santa, has, is, you're on the good list, and he's going to bless you, and, and you're anticipating brand new AirPod 3000s and iPhone XS, Infinity, whatever number. Uh, you're anticipating gifts, and, you're, and, and there's certain things that, that you're looking forward to. You're counting down the days. Maybe you're just anticipating the arrival of days off. Uh, Christmas is, is, is the season where, where you get an extended break, and you're looking forward to a sense of, of peace and tranquility and, and a few days away from the busyness of work. You see, uh, what's, what's interesting is that we're all, we all anticipate something, whether it's gifts, family, um, days off, or maybe even the arrival of a new year. We're all looking forward to something. Uh, and anticipating those things aren't necessarily bad. I, I love what the scripture says, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. But what's so amazing about God is that he doesn't give us gifts to take our attention or our eyes away from him. Rather, the gifts almost serve as an arrow, as a finger pointing to the giver of good gifts. All the, the wonderful blessings and all the gifts that we receive actually point to the greatest gift, God himself. And so during this season, we, we celebrate, we remember the arrival of a good gift. Israel longed for this arrival. They longed for the coming Messiah. The Messiah has arrived, and his name is Jesus. And so we want this season to serve as a reminder of Jesus' arrival, not just a reminder of his arrival into humanity, but a constant reminder of his arrival into our hearts. And so this is my heart for this series, that as we journey together and as we sort of tune our hearts and shift our focus to look to Jesus, would we remember what this season is all about? Uh, Let us not be distracted by consumerism and all the random things that, that we want to get out of this holiday for our own personal gain. Let us not be distracted by the finances or the lack thereof that are keeping us from figuring out how to participate in Christmas. Uh, Let us not be distracted by the pain and hurt that may be associated with this holiday, but let us fix our eyes on Jesus and celebrate and remember his arrival. You see, it's, it's really easy to forget who this season is all about because we're distracted by what this season is all about. And so my prayer for myself uh, 
and for you is that Jesus would be at the forefront and center of everything we do, and that the thought of Jesus arriving and entering our existence would move our hearts to worship and draw near to God. So for the next few Sundays leading up to Christmas, three Sundays, that's, that's incredible to think that we have three Sundays, and we have the week of Christmas, and then 2020 is over. For these next few Sundays, we will be unpacking this wonderful, beautiful, deep theological truth that Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. So with this in mind, let's dive into our text for this morning. This morning, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word? If you are joining us via live stream, uh, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We are so excited to gather and worship the Lord with you. So will you join us and open up to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Old school Bible, come on. Uh, Write this down, for these words are true and trustworthy. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you in in Jesus' name, and we ask that you would uh, come and uh, renovate our hearts, Lord. I I pray that you would tear down any barrier that would keep us from receiving your word. And Lord, I pray that you would transform us as we gaze into your word, As we meditate on your word, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come work in us and through us so that we can be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, I I love cooking. I'm not very good at it. Uh, My wife is a fantastic cook. Like, she loves, like, watching cooking shows. And and she's a little weird about it because she'll observe what they're doing and then put it into practice. I like to watch cooking shows and be like, that sounds good. Where can I eat that? 
uh, I, I like the newness of it. I like, uh, I like seeing people like go travel and, and seeing their face light up because something's delicious. And, and I think it's awesome. My wife likes to watch cooking shows and learn how to become a better cook. And she is really, really good at this. And so uh, she's actually mastered a few dishes. Uh, like Indian cuisine is her thing. She makes awesome curries, awesome tikka masalas. Uh, she's got it down to a science where, where she can just put it together, doesn't need the recipe anymore. She just goes. Now, my favorite thing to do is is to participate uh, because I like the idea of being a great cook. I like the idea uh, of getting in the kitchen and chefing and saying, boom, I created this. Enjoy it because I made it. Uh, But I'm not very good at it. And so here's what will happen. My wife will be cooking. Uh, She'll be preparing, getting the seasonings out, cutting stuff. And then I invite myself into the kitchen and I'm like, let me help you. And so she gives me very specific instructions, and she says, I want you to chop this up, season this, heat it up to this, do this, do that, and I'm like, okay, okay, I got it. And so this is what will end up happening now more than ever, is, is I'll, I'll get it going, the baby will start crying, she'll go tend to the baby, she comes back into the kitchen, and I'm doing all sorts of new stuff that she asked me not to do. Because I'm like, man, I think nutmeg would go really great in this. What is nutmeg? No idea. The color looks cool. Let's put it in this. Uh, I'm like, more onion powder. Because for whatever reason, real onions and onion powder just make sense to me. And so uh, I take what she has done the old way, the tried and true way, and I try to do a new thing with it. And what ends up happening is I end up ruining the dish. And so now I have, I, I have a corner, and all I do is chop. Okay? She's like, just chop it. I don't care what shape it is. You chop. Don't touch anything else. Um, all, all of that to say is that I, I feel that that speaks to our, 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 our humanity, is that in one way or another, we're always trying to optimize things. We're always trying to do a new thing. Maybe for you, it's, it's not cooking, but maybe there's something else that you're attracted to that you're always trying to elevate in your life, that you're trying to do a new thing with. Maybe it's, it's every year you need the new phone. Because the old phone isn't the same because the new one came out. And so you pursue the new thing. Uh, maybe it's, it's a new pair of shoes because the old pair of shoes uh, is, is cool for like this outfit, but you need the new one uh, because you want to optimize and elevate the life. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe you're not satisfied where you are and you feel like you need to be in a new surrounding, in a new work, in a new place so that your life can be elevated, whether it's a new body and you're pursuing a workout, a diet, a regimen, whether it's a new personality, a new relationship, a new adventure, a new trip, a new style, you can fill in the blank. There's something innate about humans always pursuing, wanting a new thing. We long for the new. We're, we're fascinated by the new. And, and desiring a new thing isn't, isn't necessarily wrong. But it actually reveals something at the core of humanity, at the core of our humanity, uh, that is essential for us to understand if we're going to grow in godliness. And it's this, is that our hearts are designed for eternity. Our hearts are designed for the kingdom of God. It's the reason why we're always seeking new things. We want new life, new living, because there's something in us that realizes that we're fading away, that we're falling apart, uh, that, that we're drifting away from the most optimal version of ourselves, and we try to improve and create the best version of ourselves, a new version of ourselves, because we realize 
that there's something old in here, and so we want a new thing. And, and the reason why is because there's this God-sized hole in our hearts that we're trying to fill with new things, new lifestyle, new habits, things that we, we believe will satisfy us, things that we believe will complete us and fulfill us, things that we think will refresh us and make us feel renewed. And we're trying to fill this God-sized hole with earthly things. And only God can fill this God-sized hole because our hearts are created for eternity. Our hearts are created for the kingdom of God. We were created for eternity, and we want to stay new because we sense that we're growing old. We sense that, that we're all falling apart. And unless our heart is filled with God, we will try to fill it with other things. Now, now let's consider the wider background and, and zoom out for a moment. A lot can be said about the book of Revelation. In fact, a lot has been said. Uh, depending on, on where you grew up or how you were raised, you might think that this is a scary book, uh, that this is a book about judgment and wrath and, and, and do whatever you can do to not get left behind, uh, whatever that is. Uh, maybe you, you think that this is a book to be avoided. I remember when I first came to the faith, uh, one of my friends who was really core in helping me follow Jesus kind of had this background. Uh, Berta, whatever you do, don't read the book of Revelation. I knew nothing about Jesus, so I said, right on. Uh, and, and, and I look back, and I'm like, this is an awesome book. This is a fantastic book. This is not a book to be avoided. It is not a, a scary book. It is not a confusing book. A lot has been said about this book, but one thing has not been said enough, and it's a tragedy because it is the one thing that this book is all about. You see, contrary to popular belief, this is a book about worship. It is a book about the worship of God. It is a book that was written to encourage the early church in their faith. It was meant to be read and for hope to arise in your soul and for you to walk into the lion's den and boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. It was written as a letter to the early churches, seven of them, to be specific. And it was supposed to stir the hearts of the early followers of God. You see, this book details the, the conclusion of God's awesome story of salvation. God defeats evil. God reverses the curse of sin. God restores creation. And God lives among his people for eternity. Reading this, grasping this, letting this settle into your soul that the evil and the wickedness that we see out there will be judged and will be defeated. That the curse of sin that plagues us will be reversed and we will live in eternity with God. That, that he will restore all of creation and we will enjoy it to the fullness that God designed it to be and live with him. Unhindered in union, this was supposed to move, this moves us to the worship of God. And so this is the central idea that, that God is in control and he will accomplish all that he sets out to accomplish. Now, why was all of this uh, encouraging to the early church? Well, the early church was a persecuted church. Uh, the early church was a struggling church. In fact, we get a, a good glimpse, a, a, a good Instagram profile bio of the early church in Hebrews eleven thirty six through 37. It says this, that they suffered mocking and flogging, that they were in chains and imprisoned. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. 
The early church went about in in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. This is the audience. This is the letter that this church was written to. And so reading this, John, the author, is writing to move the readers to worship God, to feel empowered to persevere in their faith. And they would feel empowered uh, to faithfully follow Christ in a fallen, broken world until the return of the Lord. You see, Revelation was written to a group of people whose world was falling apart because of their commitment to Christ. And for many of us, our world is falling apart today. Whether it's because of our commitment to Christ or all that 2020 has brought into our lives, it seems like everything is falling apart. It feels like that can be said about your life, that that you are afflicted and destitute, that you feel like you're being killed and mocked and flogged and imprisoned in your own mind or in your own life. And it seems like everything around you and in you is falling apart. And even John himself, the disciple who wrote this book, he wrote it from an island that he had been exiled to because of his allegiance to Jesus. That, that's hardcore, to be, to be identified with Christ. Uh, they tried to kill him, and he wouldn't die, and they said, well, we'll just, we'll just shun you to an island. And in that, he's writing to encourage a people that's experiencing the same persecution and affliction. And, and with this in the background, let's take a closer look at verses 1 through 5. These are the words of hope the early church read as they stepped into a persecuted world. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is incredible. The word new is mentioned four times in this set of verses. And so there are two Greek words that mean new that are found in the New Testament. The first word is, is kainos, kainos, and the second word is neos. Now, I point this out because uh, it, it actually reveals something incredible about God as we define these two terms. So the word neos means something that has recently appeared. Something that has just arrived and has not been until that moment. Something that was recently created and by definition is brand new. Neos. Uh, This word speaks to the duration of an object. It hasn't been around very long, but eventually it will get old. The word kainos, uh, it does not speak to the duration of an object, but to the quality of the newness. Like, like there is still life in the object. Uh, there's still brightness. There's still newness. It feels new. It isn't old. It isn't fading. It isn't breaking down. 
Uh, for example, it's like that, that one old shirt or jacket or pair of shoes that you never wear that's stuffed away in your closet. They're old. You've probably owned them forever. Uh, but there's still some newness to it. There's still some quality to it. There's a, there's a brightness to it. There's an unbroken feel to it. It's, it's what the scripture says, ky- kainos, is that it's not necessarily uh, new in duration, but it has a new quality to it. The idea here is that things are bright, things feel new at the beginning, but over time they feel old. Things have that new car smell and look new, but as time goes on, they fade. It starts off really strong, but eventually it gets weak and breaks down. This is what Neos is all about. Kainos is not about duration, but it's about the quality of newness. Something that is strong, something that is bright, vivid, and beautiful. Something that has the quality of being new, although it may not necessarily be new. It could be old. So Revelation 21 is telling us something. It's telling us that in Christ we can have what's called kainos without neos. In other words, we can live in this world Though we're not young, in Christ, we can have new life. Though we have experienced life and we've been bruised and battered and gone through every single affliction and it seems like we're old and aged and broken apart, we can have kainos, newness, this quality of new life with Christ. And and the scripture tells us that in Christ, things get newer and newer every single day. That in Christ, we go from glory to glory to glory. That in Christ, this quality of new life increases. It doesn't decrease, and it's not dependent on age or circumstance. That in Christ, we can experience brand new life, new grace, new mercies every single morning, despite feeling the brokenness and weariness and the old afflictions that plague us. And this is what's so beautiful about this passage of Scripture, is that God has the power to make new things new and old things new. That he has the power to make them newer and newer and newer. And and frankly, we have no earthly concept for this. You see, instead of having something to be young or brand new, out of the box to be new, uh, we can experience newness of life. Despite our age, despite our circumstances, despite where we think sin has taken us us off course, that God in his power has the power to bring life, that he has the power to bring strength, that he has the power to bring beauty to broken lives, to fading lives, to lives that are falling apart. His power can renew and breathe hope and life into any situation. We can have kainos, newness of life without necessarily being new in age or status. And this is incredible because wherever you find yourself, wherever you've been or you think you're going or, 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 or whatever you think is marking your life, whatever broken old thing that is fading and tearing you apart, God can make you new. He can breathe new life and it gets newer and newer and newer. This is grace. This is the idea that that Jesus says he is making all things new. I am making 
all things new. Other translations, I make everything new. These were the words of reassurance and hope that the church in John's day needed to hear. That despite the old that's surrounding them, despite the afflictions and the teardrops and the persecutions and the stoning and the mocking and the flogging and the chains and the imprisonment, that God has the power and ability to step into any circumstance and make it new. Uh, Whether it's renewed faith, whether it's renewed hope, whether it's renewed life, whether it's, whether it's a tangible rescue, whatever it is, God on this side of eternity or on the other side will make all things new and he will wipe away every tear. And this is what Paul says. He says that, that for this reason, I consider uh, everything a light momentary affliction. That in light of my small 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, in light of eternity, it's just a momentary affliction. When I take into account my life and the life that's to come and I, and, I, and I put it on the balance scale, my heart can be moved to hope because there is something better. Now, historically, Christians might have said, said this to, to maybe be passive about the faith. Oh, that because something new is coming and because God is making all things new, I don't have a part to play in renewal. But this is, what the, this is what's so incredible, is that when we are filled with the newness and the power of God, we come alongside him in renewing and restoring all of creation. And that we have the ability and the power to live out the original mandate, to go out into the world and to make much of creation. To go out into creation and redeem it for the, to the glory of God and for the purposes that God originally intended for it to be. And so we don't sit passive or idle and wait for God to make all things new. We come alongside of him as he makes us new. We can renew the world around us. We can renew the homes that we live in. We can renew the work that we walk into. We can renew the coworkers that that we come alongside, that God's power working in us has the ability to come out of us and bring light, bring joy, elevate the atmosphere in the rooms that we occupy. This is wonderful news. Jesus is making all things new. Making all things new. Not waiting for things to be made new. He's currently making all things new. Church, do you realize, are you walking in this? Are you part of this? That God is using you and working through you to make all things new. This hope stirred the early church. It moved them to courageous faith. This was written to a people and they knew They were about to be persecuted and killed for the faith. They knew they were about to be burned alive and fed to lions. And what's so incredible, what what really blows my mind as I was thinking about this this week, is that the comfort of this book worked. It worked. There's historical accounts of Christians walking into persecution, singing hymns and praising God. There's historical accounts of Christians walking into persecution, making much of Jesus and trying to lead their persecutors to the faith. That there is something about getting this truth and letting it lay root, take deep root in your heart that worked. It breathed new life. It breathed new courage. It breathed new hope. By grasping this, they were turned into a people of great courage. I mean, think about what this means for us. We have a tendency to think that this isn't enough. We have a tendency, I know for myself, to think that this word of God is not enough. That these these hopes are 
cliche, old, outdated truths. They, they don't work. Um, we have a tendency to think that this isn't enough for our lives. But it was sufficient for them. It was sufficient to stir up hope and courage and life and faithfulness to Christ. Surely, it is still sufficient today. You see, we have a tendency to look for hope, to look for renewal, to look for a spring of water that will give us life in new things, in other things, but not in the thing that makes all things new. You see, the same hope and the same riches that was made available to the early church that moved them to faithfulness to Christ is still available to us today. Do we believe this? Or do we feel like that was a different time, a different story? You see, this hope was sufficient for them, and yet sometimes we live like it's not sufficient for us. And when we arrive here, Maybe you're feeling this today. Maybe you're feeling like, okay, cool, Uh, revelation, outdated, that hope is different. We live in a totally different world, different circumstances, different persecutions, different cultural context. Maybe you're feeling like this hope isn't enough. I know I can feel that way. These are two diagnostic questions we need to ask ourselves. Number one, is Jesus Lord and on the throne? And number two, which fountain are you drinking from? When we feel like this hope isn't sufficient, when we feel like Jesus making all things new doesn't move our hearts to worship, we must ask ourselves, is Jesus Lord and on the throne? And number two, which fountain are you drinking from? Verse five, it says this, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We've said this a lot. God is not a liar. When he speaks, it is true, and he is faithful to his word. So when God says that he's making all things new, and he tells us to write it down, uh, that is your homework for this week. Go write this down. Jesus is making all things new. Write it down into your heart. Write it down into your notebook. Write it and etch it into your memory that Jesus is making all things new. And what I love about this is that it's describing the position, the seat, that Jesus is on. It says that he's seated on the throne, that he is Lord and he is sovereignly in control of everything. So the New Testament was written in a context in which the Roman emperor claimed lordship over all and even required worship. So whoever the Roman emperor was, whether it was Nero or Caesar, whoever it was, that emperor was Lord And he required worship, obedience, submission from all the people. He required that uh, his name be made much of, and any other name that was being made much of would be persecuted and eliminated. And so the old phrase goes that, that, that if you identified with Jesus, you would say this, this phrase. It was one of the oldest confessional creeds, and it's Jesus Hokurios, which means that Jesus is Lord in Greek. And it was a spin on another old phrase that Caesar hokurios, which means that Caesar is Lord. And so the early Christians uh, denied the lordship of Caesar, the Roman emperor, and they committed allegiance to Jesus. And they would say that Jesus is Lord. And this was a scandalous phrase. In fact, when, when uh, uh, the, the Roman officials were trying to weed out Christians in, in early Rome, this was one question they would ask because they knew Christians wouldn't lie. They said, who is Lord? And if you committed yourself to Caesar, you would say, well, Caesar is Lord, and then you would move on. But if you committed yourself to Jesus, you would say, Jesus is Lord. 
And, and immediately you knew what that meant. You knew that what awaited for you was imprisonment, being fed to the lions in the Colosseum, maybe being burned at the stake, endless possibilities of persecution, but nonetheless persecution awaited you. And yet they moved towards that. They went in that direction, claiming allegiance to Jesus. So whoever is sitting on the throne, that is who you give your life to. And we know that Jesus is on the throne, that he is Lord of Lord, King of Kings. He is on the throne. And so when we come under the Lordship of Christ, what we're saying is that Jesus, you can do a way better job with my life and leading it and directing it than I can. Like, think about that. When's the last time you try to lead and direct your own life? I have gotten in so much trouble this week from doing that. I tell my wife, this is what I think is best. And this is what we're going to do. And we, no, it doesn't work because I'm submitting to my own desires and my own flesh. I tell my family at home, this is how uh, we should do things. And, 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 and it doesn't work when we try to pursue our own lives. And, and to take it even further, when we pursue this idea to its extremes, it sounds like saying, like, I'm going to do whatever I want so that I can ensure happiness and the quality of life that I want, even if it comes at the expense of hurting or crossing other people. And we say things like this, and we believe it. We may not say it that directly, but we do it. And we say, I'm the Lord of my life. I'm in control. I control my destiny. I put the money in the bank account. I make the decision. I pay the bills. And we live as, as though we are the Lord of our own lives, as though we can control and manipulate and maneuver the universe. And you can't. And God, who is sovereignly on the throne, who orchestrates and controls every single aspect of the universe, every single fiber on your head is accounted for, every single breath that you take, every single moment and thought that you forget, God remembers. That is how in control and aware he is of your life. And he's in control. And what makes this so beautiful is that he's a good master. Like, he's a good king. He, he, he doesn't uh, demand begrudging submission, like, do this so that you can be loved. Rather, do this so that you can walk in the fullness of life. And, and this is what Jesus' commands are all about. Is that it's not necessarily conforming yourself to a way of living so that you can look like a Christian. That's not what it's about. It's God meeting us where we are and redirecting our lives because we're so helpless um, and, and, and so lost without them that, that he redirects us, transforms us from the inside out, and shows us how we ought to live from the beginning. And in that, we experience the fullness of life. See, he is a good king. He is the Lord. And to the degree that we are submitted to the lordship of Christ will be the degree to which we experience newness of life. The degree to which we are submitted to the lordship of Christ in our lives will be the degree to which we experience newness of life. And and here's what I've noticed is the biggest barrier in, in making Jesus Lord of our lives. It's ourselves. We want to be Lord, and we think we know what's best for ourselves. And for his power to be at work in our lives, we must look to Jesus more than ourselves. I'm reminded of this story that I, that I heard this week. There was a, an old high-rise building that was renovated into like a young, urban, sort of hipster apartment, and everybody was flocking to it, and everybody loved this apartment complex. But the one thing that all the residents complained about was the elevator. It was the slowest elevator. 
Uh, it barely moved. Uh, everything was so new and so great about this apartment, but the elevator was terrible. And so management would receive constant complaints about this elevator. This elevator is the worst. Change the elevator. We hate this elevator. We're not going to re-sign our lease unless you change the elevator. And, and management knew they didn't have the funds to gut out the elevator and completely transform it. So, so they did something so innovative, something so creative that completely uh, transformed the elevator experience. In fact, they made one modification, and after that, all the residents said, wow, Thank you so much for fixing the elevator. Thank you so much for adjusting it. We, we are so thankful. But the elevator speed did not change. The elevator uh, doors did not open faster or slower. It remained at the same pace and moved at the same slow pace. But one thing changed. They added mirrors. They added mirrors to elevators. And what they noticed is that when people walked into the elevator, the first thing they would do is what? Look at themselves. And they became so distracted by taking themselves in that they completely forgot about the elevator experience, how slow it was, how fast it wasn't moving. And when you think about it, like most elevators nowadays have mirrors. And what's the first thing you do when you walk into a mirror? You check yourself out. Like, yeah, look at me. I actually have a selfie of me in front of an elevator mirror that I sent to my wife. It works. Uh, But the idea here is simple is that we're so in tune with ourselves. We're so infatuated with ourselves. We love taking ourselves and we love observing ourselves. We love doing whatever is best for ourselves. And and that is the enemy of lordship. Because often what Jesus wants for our lives is not what we want for our lives, but it's what we need. Often what Jesus wants for our lives is for us to leave behind a lifestyle, to leave behind a relationship, to leave behind a habit that we think momentarily fulfills us. And Jesus says, I have something way better for you if you could only look past yourself and look to me. See, we need to look to Jesus for direction, for validation, for approval. We look to the trying God for for how we parent, for how we ought to work and what we ought to do with our lives. We submit to his lordship. We live kingdom conscious lives where we live in awareness of the union that we have with Christ. And this is what makes this passage of scripture so beautiful. And, And this is one thing that the author is purposefully doing. He's writing in such a vivid way. He's writing in a way that causes your mind to focus on the heavenly realm, to try to comprehend what this new heaven and this new earth would look like, to try to comprehend what would a life look like where every tear is wiped away and we live with God forever. And and as you do this, something uh, miraculous happens is that this truth begins to take root in your heart. And and instead of having an earthly perspective, you begin to develop a heavenly perspective. As we think about eternity, as we think about God, our earthly perspective begins to change into a heavenly perspective. And then that begins to be the lens through which we see the world. It begins to reshape the world that we live in. When we set our eyes on Christ, our earthly perspective will be reshaped. When we submit to his rule and reign in our lives, we will experience his power at work in making all things new. The second question is, which fountain are you drinking from? As we read verse 6, it says, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water life without payment. Now, what is this spring of water of life? Jesus talks about this. 
He mentions it in John 4.14. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, this water brings life. This water bring, is full. It's full. It's free. There's an endless supply to meet our deepest needs and quench our thirst. We know that this water is the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given us to drink from, to be refilled from. To, to be empowered by his presence, to walk in the newness of life. Now, this other fountain brings death. This is uh, indulging on the desires of the flesh that bring death. You see, we call it maybe momentary satisfaction, but in reality, it brings death. That the willful, ongoing practice of sin brings death. Whether it corrupts us internally, corrupts and brings death to our relationships Outside of us, eventually, we'll see the breakdown of sin take full force in our lives, and we'll come to a moment where we said, how did I end up here? And that's the, 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 the stealth manipulation of sin, is that in its moment, it's promising. But as many have pointed out, it always underdelivers. That sin brings death. And if this is the fountain, if this is the fountain that you drink from, you will never be satisfied. It will never be enough. You will actually find unique and creative ways uh, to drink the same drink of sin and death and habits in a, in a creative way, in a new way, hoping that it will fill you and satisfy you the way it once did, but come up completely empty. And you will never be filled. And this is why the scripture commands us to be filled with the spirit, to drink from the, the water, the, the springs that bring and give life to the degree that we are filled with his spirit, to the degree that we are submitted to his lordship will be the degree that we experience his power in making all things new. The degree that we are filled with the spirit, abiding, taking in God, and we're submitted to his lordship will be the degree to which we experience his power in making all things new. The scripture, John 15, calls us abiding, staying connected to the root. If we disconnect from the root, we dry out and wither, and we burn. But if we remain connected, we're like a tree that's planted by the water, that in heat or drought, we bear much fruit. That's our portion, a continual flow of living water coming in us and through us, despite the season, despite what 2020 has brought you, despite what 2021 is going to bring you, regardless of what's happening around you, there's a, there's a river of living water flowing in you and through you, washing away all the afflictions, washing away all the doubt, washing away all the hopelessness, while at the same time taking you from one degree of newness to another, becoming newer and newer and newer. Do we believe this? You see, this is the reason why the scriptures command us to be filled with him. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery and all sorts of uh, spiritual dilemmas. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And there are many other references that, that have to do with being filled with the Spirit all over the Scripture. And I love this illustration, and we've shared this before, that, that we get thirsty. Like, like eventually, we, we get hungry again. That, that in our sinful humanity, we're prone to drift um, and, and, and so it, it, it's like any good diet or, or sort of eating cleanse that you try to keep. This is why fasting is difficult for me. 
Because I make it to day two, and I'm like, this is great. And now things start sounding good to me that never sounded good, like a cheesy encrusted taco from Taco Bell. What is that? I don't know, but it sounds good. Would never have had it. And, and, and so that's sort of like the, the, the life that, that we live is that we begin to drift away from godliness because of our sinful condition. And, and, and the scripture reminds us to be filled, to come back to the source of living water because you'll either dry out or you'll indulge and drink from a different fountain. Which fountain are you drinking from? Are you drinking from a fountain at all? Do you find yourself dry and withering? You see, both influences are, are, are related to choices we make. A person chooses to drink from the fountain of alcohol to excessively become drunk. In the same way, we, we have to choose to drink from the fountain of life, the Holy Spirit, to yield ourselves to his empowering influence over our lives. Be filled with the Spirit. Keep being filled with the Spirit. Submit yourself to His way, and His way is a better way to live. We need to drink from the fountain of living water. It's been made available to us. We need to keep filling our lives with the Spirit of God, relying on His indwelling influence. And as we do that, the Scripture promises that we'll experience one degree of newness to another. We will be newer and newer and newer. The, the environments that we walk in will be made new. We will bring life into the world around us. So, so what's your next step for this week? Two steps, really simple. Number one, go to the throne. Go to the throne. Ask yourself, what part of my life am I not submitting to Jesus? What part of my life am I not experiencing newness of life? What part of my life am I experiencing death? And how can I submit that part of my life to Christ so that I can experience newness of life? It's this incredibly practical. Uh, I love that. I really don't have to go into it because God does the rest. That as we submit our lives to him and choose to walk in faithful obedience, he honors that. And he begins to work in us the work of the Holy Spirit through us so that we can put idols to death, so that we can walk in victory and wholeness. Not overnight, but God will carry us from one degree of newness, one degree of glory to another as we submit our lives to him. Second practical takeaway, drink from the well. Drink from the well of living water. My favorite prayer, I love to pray, Holy Spirit, fill me. In fact, let's all pray this together. Holy Spirit, fill me. And as we do that, we trust that, that, that that's a prayer that God loves to answer, that he will fill us with his power and presence. Drink from the well. Abide with God. Uh, enjoy God. Drinking from the well often looks like enjoying God. If you love to paint, go paint for the glory of God. If you love to walk through nature, go walk through nature for the glory of God. If you love to play video games, do it in the most sanctified way possible. I believe there's a way. Do it for the glory of God. Enjoy God. Be with God. Abide with him. Refresh your soul. There's so much out there that is draining us. There's so much out there that that wants to deplete us and make us dry. Let us fill ourselves with the good things of God. And as we do that, experience newness from him. So who is the Lord of your life, and where are you seeking renewal? Which fountain are you drinking from? Let's ask ourselves these questions as we come to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and he was handed over.